In Brazil, they call it the tomato crisis. And it began early last year, the tomato crisis. And for many Brazilians, it became the symbol of everything that was going wrong in their country. The prices of tomatoes all of a sudden just went completely crazy. And tomatoes are, you know, obviously a staple food in any society, particularly here in Brazil. This is Lourdes Garcia Navarro. She's NPR's correspondent in South America. It was costing an arm and a leg to get a kilo or pound of tomatoes. And it caused a huge uproar here. I mean, it went up something absurd. Beautiful red tomatoes showing up in the markets of Sao Paulo were all of a sudden double the price. Six dollars. Six fifty a kilo. There were Italian restaurants in Sao Paulo who were like, we no longer will use tomatoes in our recipes because we, you know, are not going to pay these extortionate prices for tomatoes. There were tomato protests, tomato boycotts. But tomatoes were just one small part of the problem. They call it the tomato crisis, but in fact, tomatoes are just a stand-in for everything. Everything was going up in price. I've lived in London. I've lived in Geneva. I have never lived in a country like Brazil, which is so absurdly expensive. Uh, When I first got here, I went to the store to buy a toy uh, for my daughter. And I looked on Amazon.com. And on Amazon.com in the States, it cost you $15. I went to the store here in Brazil at not a great mall, at a normal mall. And that same item costs $80. Um, It's absurd. A futon here costs you $1,500, $1,600. You know, we're not even talking like things that are amazing. We're talking like the basic stuff just really costs a lot. People really weren't sure what was going on. And there are lots of economic reasons a growing country can get caught up in inflation. But part of the blame for the expense of tomatoes lies with a man who lives a long way from Rio de Janeiro. A bald man with a beard who said a few cryptic words and changed the lives of millions of people in Brazil. And Indonesia and Thailand. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Zoe Chase. And I'm Robert Smith. Today, why Ben Bernanke's voice is the most powerful force in the universe. We'll tell you what he said a few years ago to send the prices of tomatoes and futons and everything in Brazil through the roof. And how recently he said something else, something that freaked out the world and caused this. The stock market will open tomorrow, coming off its worst week in more than two years. Emerging market currencies taking another hit today, but is it blind panic or can... Effectively, cheap money flooded the fast-growing emerging markets, and now the Istanbul skyline may be a poster child, potentially, for some huge bankruptcies. Now that the money is tightening up, essentially, interest rates are rising, and, of course, a lot of those loans are in dollars. You like potatoes? And you like potato? You like tomato? And you like tomato? Potato? Potato? Tomato? Tomato? Let's Okay, the story begins a few years ago in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Every year, a bunch of central bankers and economists from all over the world go to Jackson Hole. And they sit out in the sun, they stare up at the Grand Teton Mountains. Iswar Prasad is an economist at Cornell. He tries not to miss it. It gives central bankers a chance to um, relax and, uh, as some of them have told me, to recharge intellectually. You give a speech in the morning and in the afternoon you're with the president of the World Bank and the uh, governor of the Bank of Japan and the Fed governor going down uh, Whitewater Rapids. It's a chance to unwind. Unwind their asset purchases. (laughs) Okay, it's more like a summer camp for exhausted monetary policy makers. Usually that's what it's like. 
Yeah. Well, back in 2010, Ben Bernanke was there, and he probably didn't feel much like whitewater rafting. He is, of course, the head of the Federal Reserve. And in 2010, you may recall, he had a big problem. The U.S. economy wasn't really responding to anything the Federal Reserve was doing. So with all the economic leaders of the world gathered there to have a good time, Ben Bernanke decided to send a message. And that is when he said the words that would end up causing problems with tomatoes and futons. His speech is not recorded, but we do have the transcript here. And if you don't know what you're listening for, you might have missed this line. But this is what Ben Bernanke said. I believe that additional purchases of longer term securities should the FOMC choose to undertake them, that's the Federal Reserve, would be effective in further easing financial conditions. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Central bankers and economists freak out when they hear this. It was a a remarkable statement because the Fed in particular has run monetary policy in a very orthodox way for a a long time. Yes, this was a very unorthodox statement. It was the opposite of orthodoxy. He said the Federal Reserve was going to do this big thing. They're going to go out into the financial markets and buy U.S. Treasury bonds, $600 billion worth of bonds. And they gave it an unorthodox name. I'm sure you've heard it. Quantitative easing, QE. And here's how it's supposed to work. We've gone over this before in Planet Money. You take a big bank, Bank of America, say, and let's just say they have $50 billion in government bonds. Now, they would sell those bonds, certainly, if someone would pay enough money for them. But no one's willing to pay that much. So the bank just holds on to these government bonds. With quantitative easing, they have a customer. The Fed comes along, says, Bank of America, we will buy those bonds for a little more money than anyone else is willing to pay for them. Bank of America is like, OK, great. Send us the money. But this is where the Fed gets to use its magic. Central bank magic. Yeah, they pay for that $50 billion purchase with new money. They just invent it out of thin air. That's what the Fed, but nobody else gets to do. So now Bank of America has $50 billion that they need to do something with. And the idea is that Bank of America will decide to lend the $50 billion to companies and people to invest or spend as they like and stimulate the whole economy. That is the idea of quantitative easing. But Ben Bernanke's Grand Teton plan did not work out quite that smoothly. Sure, Mr. Fat Cat Investment Banker got his cash, and he started to look around for ways to invest this newly printed money. Some of that money made it to the U.S. stock market. Some of it went into new loans. But all of those dollars created a hunger that the U.S. alone could not satisfy. Mr. Fat Cat had to start looking someplace else. The U.S. economy doesn't seem to have such good growth prospects, and I'm getting a lousy rate of return on my money here. Are there any better opportunities elsewhere in the world. And he looks around and he sees this group of countries that are called emerging markets, countries like China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, Thailand, and so forth, all of which went through the crisis in much better shape than the advanced economies like the US, Japan, um, or the Eurozone. And those countries were offering much higher rates of return. So... All of a sudden, a huge amount of the new money starts to pour out of the banks, leaps across the Pacific Ocean, the Panama Canal, and floods into the emerging markets, seeking out any investment opportunity it can find. Can you hear me okay? Yep. An investment opportunity like this guy. My name is Pandu Shahrir. Pandu Sharir. He had just started a coal company in Indonesia right around this time. And he was looking for investors for his company. 
He had a bank, set up some meetings in New York. I mean, when we were there, three days, we had about 35 meetings. <laughs> no way. And what did they say? For 35 meetings, I've never had that before. The bank set it up. So we had like 11 or 12 on one day, and there's only about 12 to 14 hours working day. Hedge funds, big investment funds, pension funds, they all wanted a piece of this Indonesian coal company. And Sharir knew exactly why all these big American banks were interested in his random coal company. Because before he started his company, he'd worked on Wall Street. Lehman Brothers, actually. And he knew what was going through the heads of the investment bankers. Back in 2011, 2012, those two years especially, uh, Indonesia and I would say Asia is the main story of growth. So I think they are there and they have been mandated by their head office to push growth. So they have to get deals Mm -hmm. from all the big mutual funds, the hedge funds. All of them are looking in Asia. They say, hey, we have to find something in Asia to, to put money to work. And in fact, that was exactly what was happening as a result of the bearded man's speech at the foot of the Grand Tetons. Just look at Indonesia. These investment guys were buying everything they could. According to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, at the end of 2012, about one-third of all government bonds were held by foreign investors. The Indonesian stock market, three-fifths of the stocks were held by foreigners. And that's not the worst thing in the world for a growing country, right? All this new wealth gets spread around, businesses grow, people get loans, unemployment goes down, wages go up. And when we talked to Lourdes Garcia Navarro in Brazil, she said that almost anyone who wanted a job in Brazil during this time could get one. We started seeing record employment here. Um, People who were living in terrible poverty, uh, all of a sudden their lives got better. They inched into the very lowest rungs of the middle class. Um, So, you know, there was a sense that um, they were building a consumer society, a modern country that could compete with the best and the greatest of the world. But this is where the problem with the tomatoes happens, because more loans, more jobs means more money chasing the same number of goods. That's what causes inflation. That's what causes prices to go up. You know, this little moment also demonstrates, if you have ever doubted this before, the power of Ben Bernanke. Because all these emerging countries, they have their own central banks. And those central bankers see this inflation situation and they are not happy with it. And so they try to slow it down. And the only tool a central bank has to slow down inflation is interest rates. These countries raised their interest rates. They made money harder to borrow. They tried to slow down the economy. But high interest rates also attract money, attract even more money than before. It is fruitless to try to resist what the U.S. Federal Reserve has intimated that it is doing. The only man who can really slow down the flow of money to emerging markets is the man who started it in the first place. Last June, Ben Bernanke went before the news cameras. Good afternoon. Yeah, it was not going to be a good afternoon for investors. (laughs) Ben Bernanke was about to say... The exact opposite of what he had said a few years before in Wyoming. The committee currently anticipates that it would be appropriate to moderate the monthly pace of purchases later this year. Okay, again, translation from Fed speak. When Bernanke says he's going to moderate purchases, it means he's going to buy fewer bonds. He's going to send less money to the banks, and that means less money flowing to the rest of the world. Iswar Prasad took us inside the mind of the fat cat investor again, and he said Mr. Fat Cat was probably kicking back, enjoying his Indonesian coal profits, enjoying his Brazilian returns, and then he hears that line. 
Ben Bernanke was basically saying things are going to get much better here in the United States. And Mr. Fat Cat says, okay, it's time for my money to come home. So he pulls his money back. And the problem is that once one of our millionaire or billionaire investors starts thinking about this, all the other millionaire and billionaire investors think to themselves, look, this other guy might get out before me, and if I'm the second or third person to get out, I might make a bigger loss. And if I'm the 20th person to get out, I might end up making a pretty big loss, so I better get out soon. So now a lot of these investors sort of move like a herd uh, because none of them wants to be the last one out. And the herd started to stampede in the last couple of months. The Federal Reserve cut back its bond buying in December. They did it again this week. And the emerging countries got clobbered because money is flowing out. The stock markets in Turkey, Russia, South Africa, Argentina all hit hard. The value of their currency started to plunge this week. It's a crazy ride for all these countries. And maybe after this shock is over, they can actually get back to a more kind of normal pace of growth and basically get out from under the shadow of the Federal Reserve. Janet Yellen actually will be the one delivering the cryptic remarks from now on. In the end, these emerging markets still have a fundamental strength. I mean, they are growing. They are emerging. Yeah. Even with all this money coming in and now flowing out, GDP growth in these countries is still four, five, six percent better than in the United States. And, you know, Ben Bernanke, during this whole thing, he kept getting asked, don't you feel bad for sending the emerging markets on this roller coaster? Isn't that kind of mean? And he basically said, yes, I care about these countries. I talk to their bankers all the time. But in the end, Bernanke said he has to do whatever it takes to improve the U.S. economy. And the U.S. economy is the largest economy in the world. If that economy gets healthy, the other countries will follow. That's actually how the coal guy thinks of it, too, in Indonesia. If the United States is doing well, they'll be hungry for more Indonesian coal. You say either, I say either, you say neither, and I say neither, either, either, and either, neither, and let's call the whole thing off. Before we finish today, I had one small correction from our last episode. We had economist Tim Harford answer questions about love and sex and marriage. And as part of that discussion, we were joking around about the theories of economist Gary Becker. You have to listen to the episode. But in the course of this discussion, we made a joke that Gary Becker probably didn't do a lot of research into polyamory. Well... It seems that we were mistaken. A listener wrote in and pointed out that Gary Becker wrote a book chapter called A Theory of Marriage, where he actually analyzes the economics of polygamy. I guess that's the last time we will make a joke about what an economist may or may not be familiar with. As always, we love to hear from you. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Zoe Chase. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. And you like potato. You like tomato. And you like tomato. Potato. Potato. Tomato. Tomato. Let's call it